people want to come to Las Vegas and have a good time and have an incredible customer service experience and be able to see shows they've never seen anywhere else. That is just like our bread and butter. But when people's pocketbooks are a little bit stretched and they're unable to make that trip or they can't stay four days and they're only staying three, we need to have other industries that help support us during those moments of instability in the economy. Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurdon, president of the Academy. This month, as we focus on recognizing and honoring public service, I'm chatting with some of our Academy fellows who've had amazing careers. In this episode, I'll be talking with Betsy Fretwell, longtime manager for the city of Las Vegas, about her experiences in local government. Betsy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Terry. You spent most of your career in city management in Las Vegas. Tell us what or who inspired you to get into public administration. Oh my gosh, that's probably longer than your 30 minute segment. <laughs> uh, no, actually, you know, I grew up in a family that was um, very focused on serving the community. My grandfather served as a city councilman, my grandmother was highly engaged in a variety of civic activities. And so from a very early age, I was working Saturdays at Meals on Wheels with my grandmother. Uh, So (laughs) I guess the seed was planted early. And then as I started going through college, I was trying to figure out what did I really enjoy doing? And I got bitten by the political science bug and ended up going into political science and public administration. It was kind of interesting that really started when I was in high school because I was very involved with the high school government stuff. And I went to government for a day and drew a name out of a hat in Greenville, South Carolina, where we were going to pretend to run the city for a day. And, you know, everybody wanted to be the police chief or the fire chief or the mayor, and I drew city manager. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) found out very quickly that the city manager was responsible for all the budgets, basically was, you know, responsible for running the entire city, in this case, not the mayor, at the time, and and that there was a tremendous amount of opportunity to lead a team. So I kind of fell in love, and that was the track I was on, and then eventually finished with my master's in public administration and went into public service for 27 years. What a cool story. I mean, thinking about how influential those kinds of experiences can be for high schoolers to get them to understand what a city manager has to do on a daily basis. I'm just curious. When you were city manager, did you have the opportunity to pay that forward to kind of create that opportunity for local high schoolers? Well, we we had a lot of internship programs when I was city manager and and for that reason. So we had summer programs that were tailored towards exposing young adults to public service. And we also had internships for folks that were working through their master's programs. Uh, We had partnerships with Michigan State and the University of Georgia and UNLV to help try and create a pathway for folks to make a career in public service. And uh, that was very rewarding. So you fell in love with city management early on. What did you expect that career to look like? Did you expect to spend it all in one place? Did you expect to be packing your bags and moving to a different city every three or four years? What did you expect when you got started? What really happened is I did an internship when I was in graduate school and I went and worked for a small city in South Carolina. And the city manager and I had a pretty good relationship. And so when I went back and finished up graduate school, 
I got offered this position in Clark County, Nevada. And it was an internship, it was a national recruitment. It was an awesome experience. However, I was like, I don't know. I, I grew up in South Carolina. I went to the University of Georgia. I don't know if I want to go all the way to the West and Las Vegas, really? I don't know. And he said something really important to me. He said, Betsy, you're going to start as a small fish in a big pond. But that life is a lot easier than having to move your family every two to three years to move up in the world as a city manager from a small city to a slightly larger one to a slightly larger one. He said, that's 30 years of moving every three years. So he said, you've got an incredible opportunity to make your way. Now, at that time, he probably never thought I was going to be city manager of the city of Las Vegas. He probably thought I would top out at some management level position, maybe. So it worked out great for me. Wow, that's a really interesting perspective. You know, so you could start in a small city and be a big fish in a small pond, but you have to keep moving to bigger ponds or start in a big pond where you have that opportunity for career progression. What a cool insight. So let's talk about Las Vegas and your experiences there. I mean, they've been in the news, you know, lately because they've been so impacted by COVID and, and there are lots of challenges there. I'm interested, what were the big issues that faced you kind of on a daily basis managing a city like Las Vegas? Well, with the global recognition and the global brand, there are a lot of a lot of expectations, I'll just say that. Expectations of leadership, expectations of presence, expectations of professionalism. And that was great, actually. I mean, it's a bit of a gift. Many cities would love to have that kind of brand power, if you will. I had one friend tell me early on when I was considering taking this job at the city of Las Vegas, and she said, this is the best thing that's ever going to happen to your resume, Betsy, because people always have something to say about Las Vegas, and they'll always want to interview you because you worked for them. <laughs> so I think, they were, I think that was pretty good advice. But yeah, Las Vegas was a very interesting opportunity for me. I actually feel very honored to have held that position for such a long time. And have the opportunity to lead, you know, one of the top largest 25 cities in the country at the time. And one of the few of that size that were city manager, you know, council manager, form of government to give me the opportunity to do that was incredible. And you had such an opportunity to be able to impact so many different things and so many different lives, not just in our own jurisdiction, but our jurisdiction and beyond. And that was really cool. What were some of the big initiatives that you led in your time at Las Vegas? Well, you might remember this, Terry. I'm not sure, but I took the reins at the city of Las Vegas right as we were heading full on into the Great Recession. So in 2009, I had led an effort as a deputy city manager to do a retrenchment plan because we knew we were in for a world of hurt. And then our city manager decided to hang up his running shoes and when he did that, I was fortunate enough to be selected. But let me tell you, that was a seriously challenging time. We had had to reduce our budget um, substantially, 20 to 25%. We had a $400 million structural deficit over five years. So no small feat to overcome that. So getting that budget back in balance was probably one of the biggest accomplishments. And meanwhile while trying to straighten out the financial situation and help our businesses recover and keep the labor force where it needed to be so businesses could recover, 
stabilize the city budget. We also embarked on a huge capital improvement program. We built a new city hall. We built a state-of-the-art performing arts center, three new fire stations, and a new museum, to name just a few. And it kept people employed and kept a lot of our specialists in town that were fleeing for jobs other places because Las Vegas was really struggling in the Great Recession. In fact, the gentleman that succeeded me as city manager called him when COVID, when the COVID stuff started hitting. And I said, you know, hey, if, if you ever need to talk, I'm, I'm here. And he said, you know what, Betsy, the greatest gift you gave me was teaching me how to get through a recession like this when we went through the Great Recession seven years ago. And while flattering, I hated the fact that they had to go through it again and had a very short planning window to respond in but at least they had the tools to do it. I mean, there's a little bit of a difference here in terms of travel impacting a city that's so dependent on tourism as opposed to the housing bubble that, you know, the the causes are a little bit different, but the personal pain is probably not much different. How did you back in 2009 think about addressing city services and human services that might also have translated into the COVID situation that they're facing today? We used quite a bit of data analytics and we had, and this was a little challenging in COVID because you couldn't really do it this way. You had to rely on technology, but we had a lot of community meetings. Some of them were small, you know, 10 people would show up to a community center and others, we had hundreds of people who were concerned about sustaining programs or what it would do for their children or their parents or, you know, the condition of their neighborhood. We used both, but frankly, I felt like the data was the most important piece of the puzzle to actually figure out utilization rates, cost impacts, investment levels, conditions of buildings, what kind of staffing it took to support certain kinds of functions over others, how well they were used. Those things helped make much better decision-making frameworks for me to be able to take to the council to say, hey, here are some of the things that we need to cut. Here are the things that we just want to prune back because we really want them to be able to regrow. And here are some of the things that we simply cannot go without. So it was a much easier definition process by using using data to help us make those decisions and to make those recommendations to the mayor and council. And does the city maintain those data collection practices so that they've got some of the, the modern data tools to help them deal with the situations today? Last time I checked, they were still ranked fifth. So I'm really proud of that, particularly in data transparency, because I think it's important for for anyone. I mean, Betsy Fretwell as a citizen or any of the residents of the city in which you live to be able to go do their own homework. And frankly, sometimes that sheds light on things that you might not be thinking about from an internal perspective as a city manager or as a, a city council person. Sometimes you've got citizen scientists out there that are willing to do a lot of hard work to prove their point. And I actually relish that. I thought that was great. And you also just made the case in your discussion about the infrastructure investment that Las Vegas made, sort of for the national conversation around infrastructure, that it is attractive to its citizens, that it creates jobs, that it helps you retain talents and workforce. I'm interested too, though, how did Las Vegas funded, right? You just said you were coming out of a a recession. You had to get the budget back in balance. How did you create a funding mechanism that allowed you to generate such an expansive infrastructure investment? 
Well, we we did a couple of things. We did some some land exchanges and a 3P partnership to do the city hall project. And then we were able to take advantage of some of the reserves that we had been very careful to build up to to buy us time. One of the things about the Great Recession is that it really took three years because governments are lagging indicators, not leading indicators, right? (laughs) So it took us about three years to feel the full impact of the 2008 recession. So our full cuts were implemented by 2011. Well, and then the private sector economy was starting to come back out, but we weren't. So that was a bit challenging. We used some kind of creative financing. I mean, frankly, we had other people looking at us saying, cannot believe you guys are going forward with that project. But on the other hand, I can't tell you the number of construction firms, general contractors, engineers, subspecialists who are like, you guys are the only ones doing vertical construction in Las Vegas who probably had not seen one day without vertical construction for you know, the past 35 years, you're the only ones employing us. So thank you. So it's kind of a delicate balance, but we were pretty conservative in our approach and we were also bullish on recovery and we had enough in reserves to be able to take a few long shots and they worked. I mean, Mayor Goodman and I talked about this several times. Hey, this is like our own little mini new deal plan here and it worked. We recovered quickly. We got some major projects done that needed to be done. We're able to come out, frankly, I felt a much uh, more streamlined organization that was more sustainable. Were you able to integrate a lot of climate sensitive issues into your infrastructure plan? I mean, you certainly have plenty of solar out there in Las Vegas, but at the same time, you're really challenged with water and other sorts of infrastructure pieces. I'm just curious how integrated climate issues were in your in your infrastructure and your construction? While we were going through all of those kinds of projects, we also were the first, to my knowledge, municipality to leave an investor-owned utility through a Green Rider tariff and become 100% renewable. So we worked on that too. We worked on a lot of stuff. I mean, if you, if you talk to my team, they'd be like, we were tired when Betsy left. <laughs> We, we had a lot of things that we did while I was there. And and it was because our mayor and council were really excited to move the needle on sustainability and really be a national leader. We, we won a U.S. Conference of Mayors Award for that. Um, mayor Carolyn Goodman was a recipient of it. it. It was really rewarding. And frankly, it was really important to the long-term sustainability of the city. It really moved the needle. And so I was really proud of that. You know, so there were a lot of things along the way that we tried to invest in technology, lower our cost of doing business, improve our bond rating, be 100% renewable, created our own banking infrastructure for new market tax credits, a whole bunch of stuff that really that crisis opened the door for us to do things very differently, help the council feel comfortable with doing some things differently than other people were doing. And that just created more and more opportunity for the city. So it, it all kind of worked together at the end of the day. It dovetailed together quite well. That's an amazing list of accomplishments. And you sound like the walking advertisement for never waste a good crisis, right? Right. As you're having conversations with your mayor and your, your city council, how did you balance the issues of risk and reward in those kinds of conversations? There's always that balance to strike, right? Governments are 
typically fairly conservative in their approach because frankly, you're spending other people's money and you need to be conservative. 600,000 people and untold numbers of households were entrusting us with tax dollars every year to make their community better. So I think that risk management, that risk analysis was kind of just always kind of a baseline consideration. We used the traditional measures to make sure we were okay. I mean, we kept a really close eye on our bond ratings. We had a fiscal oversight committee that was a series of advisors from the local region that were, you know, had very strong reputations for their financial understanding. I met with them twice a year to get their feedback on things that we were getting ready to approach. That helped the council feel much more comfortable that, you know, this just wasn't us drinking our own Kool-Aid. Other people agreed with our approaches. So that was good. So I think things like that really helped. I did not hesitate to bring in industry partners to be able to say, hey, you three are the biggest developers in Las Vegas. What do you think about this idea? And fortunately for them, they would say, you know what, Betsy? And no, that is a harebrained idea. Don't you go do that. This is why this is not going to work. And fortunately, I wasn't so pig-headed about it that I said, okay, help me make it a better idea. What, what can we do differently to achieve this goal? You know, so it was a real partnership. And I, and I love that piece of the puzzle. Well, and you're still working on partnership for Las Vegas. I mean, you're not the city manager anymore, but now you're the chair of the board for the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance. So sort of back to where we started from with a city with a global brand, what does the international relationship, the brand mean for a city like like Las Vegas? What is the role of that board in, in sort of the economic future of the city? Actually, I'm, I'm really flattered to be the, the chairwoman of the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance. It's basically our economic development organization for Southern Nevada. And the idea is to, to diversify and grow business in Southern Nevada. It becomes really painfully obvious when the Las Vegas Strip has to shut down because of a COVID crisis, how much you really need to diversify uh, <laughs> in the Great Recession, we diversified our economy by more than 4%. Some people say, well, you know, but that 4% made a big difference going into this last recession. But it's also interesting because now I think everybody understands that we need to be doing more and we really need to focus on different kinds of businesses that will zig when our resort and tourism industry zags. And it's good for them too. It's good for our what we're known for. I mean, people want to come to Las Vegas and have a good time and have an incredible customer service experience and be able to see shows they'd never see anywhere else and experience entertainment that they wouldn't be able to to see anywhere else. We want that. That is just like our bread and butter. But when people's pocketbooks are a little bit stretched and they're unable to make that trip or they can't stay four days and they're only staying three, we need to have other industries that help support us during those moments of instability in the economy. So I think we're, we're making pretty big headway. We've just identified a whole series of target industries that we're going to be really pushing for in the next, I would say, three to five years. And our governor is really stepping up and, and into this and, and asking for industry leadership to help us attract new and different businesses. And, you know, COVID's taught us how to do things totally differently. You know, we can do a lot of things that we didn't know we could using technology. And 
So that opened some doors too. So, so we're really excited about the opportunity and I'm happy to have the mantle, so to speak, for two years and be able to work through that target industry analysis and a new economic development strategy that paves the way for a stronger, brighter future for Las Vegas. As you think about diversifying the economic base of the region, how are you also then thinking about workforce? I mean, presumably you're thinking about bringing in different industries where that will require different skills than those in the population you currently have. Does the Las Vegas Global Economic Alliance, does it partner with state agencies and universities? How are you thinking about the whole ecosystem? We have some really robust partnerships. In fact, on our board, the presidents of all of our local universities are on our board, including the chancellor of the system. So we have very robust education conversations and workforce conversations. And that's great. We have historically produced and published reports that show basically the, the skill deficit and the workforce needs of the future. We, we produce a report every three to five years that kind of lays that out. Those educational institutions take that report as a part of their overall trajectory to figure out, I wouldn't say industry, but what types of employees need to be trained to what skill set so that they can then build out the right certification, degree, track, program, whatever it might be, because it takes higher ed a long time to adapt. It, it just does. So this is really helpful for them. But one of the things I think is coolest about what's going on right now is that, for instance, we just were able to attract a new company called Haas. And Haas is basically the company that builds the machines that build machines. So advanced manufacturing to the highest degree. They are working with higher ed and other industry partners to build out a workforce development scenario so that they can hit their employment numbers, which is close to 2,000 people. And so I think those kinds of unique partnerships are really going to be important. And kudos to the city of Henderson for attracting this company and kudos to College of Southern Nevada for being willing to sit down and work out a unique partnership like that to get them the workforce they need because they know it's going to be a challenge. So it's like a lot of interlocking pieces to a puzzle. And sometimes it feels like you're having to recut the puzzle a little bit, but that's okay. I mean, it gives us something to do. Well, your enthusiasm for this and your way of describing it, if I was new to the career field, I would be like, I want to be a city manager. That's where all of the fun problems wind up. And you've got such a cool network to try to solve them. I know you're still on the field of play here. So what are your objectives? Like, what do you still want to accomplish while you're working in this space? Well, I I feel really passionately about a couple of things. I was fortunate enough to have a a trajectory in local government that I could retire at a, a relatively young age and start a new chapter in my life, a new career step. And I went into technology on purpose for a variety of reasons. One, Technology, as we all know, is pretty resilient when it comes to downturns in the economy. So point one, there's going to be a lot of stability associated with that, but also a lot of run room because there's a lot of growth going on in those industries. Two, it afforded me an opportunity to continue to work with communities around the country to help them design solutions. Because one of the things I found as city manager at least this is how I felt, that I was reaching a point where 
the public sector ability to solve for some of the problems that were coming screaming our way was hampered without public-private partnerships. And we needed people in the private sector to actually be able to understand the language and the lingo of local governments and state governments and federal governments to be able to put together reasonable, responsible types of public-private partnerships that moved not only the companies, but the communities forward in a very responsible way. And I was excited about that, and I still am. I think there's a lot of room to grow there. I think it's a bit challenging considering procurement processes and a variety of other things. But frankly, local governments and state governments don't have the money to invest in the kind of technology that they need to be doing to be prepared for the future. So as a result, that's what I'm looking forward to in this next chapter. And I get an opportunity, thank goodness, to be able to have that opportunity through a variety of boards that I sit on, through my company, Switch, who's been immensely supportive of the kinds of things that we're working on. And I still get to dabble in the public sector stuff without having to be in charge of a giant city any longer. So it's been a great transition for me. So just as a closing question, Betsy, what advice do you have for up and coming public administrators as they think about their future? What do you want to make sure they know? Where would you coach them? I would say that it's really important to set your goals early and talk about them early. I know sometimes people feel that it's important to, you know, kind of assess the situation and kind of figure out, is that the right track? And I don't want to step on somebody's toes. And what if they hate me for my idea that I want to be the police chief? Who cares? You want to be the police chief. So go after it. Don't be shy and do what you need to do to prepare for it. Because that type of progression in your career, that kind of experience that gets you ready for those opportunities. I mean, I didn't know I was going to be city manager, Terry, in 2008. I thought my city manager was going to hang around for a while longer. And was it an ideal time for me personally? No. You only get those shots every once in a while, and you got to be willing to jump in when it happens. So be ready and get your head ready for it, regardless of what else is going on in your life, because it may be the only shot you get. So that would be my advice. Go after it. Be loud and be proud about it and just go after it. Betsy, thanks for giving us a little bit of insight into your personal experience You almost sound to me like a a comic book superheroine as a city manager. It's it's exciting. You have an opportunity to make a tremendous impact. Thanks for all that you've done and all that you're continuing to do. Really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you, Terry, so much. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new podcast from the Academy. We'll be talking to Academy fellows each week about the challenges facing public administrators at every level of government as we try to make government work and work for all. Thanks for listening.